People need the Lord. Amen. Thank you, Brother Cruz, man. You see, this church, we have brothers. We also have younger brothers. And so we kind of hand each other uh, a baton. You learn from your elders, and those who are behind you, they also learn from you. And uh, it's good to know that uh, God has chose, he has chosen to bring us all here for such a time as this. I'm excited to tell you that this church is going forward. Uh, excited to hear good testimonies. Uh, Sister Martin, Mona's mother, uh, she was stuck up there. Uh, is it Michigan or Detroit, sister? Uh, Detroit, Michigan. And she was sick uh, while they were visiting. And then things changed. Sister Mona was stuck there uh, with mother, doing all she can do. She's a wonderful, wonderful, wonderful daughter. To God be the glory. To see this sister in church today, uh, we need to praise God for what we can see. You know, people want miracles, but these are miracles every single day. And uh, please be encouraged that uh, it's good to have a church family. Life can be rough. Life can be rough. Talking about young brothers, it's good to see Arrow there, uh, a giant, but he's a young brother to me. I, I just like the fact that he's taller, but I'm still old. And so, good to see you, Arrow. Uh, and today, we're going to talk about Luke chapter 24, uh, verse 50 to 53. I want to also thank our Pastor Harris. Pastor is doing such a wonderful job uh, at this place. Uh, he's invited to preach in New York because uh, there's work to do. There's work to do. That's God's work. And Luke says here, uh, in the Gospel of Luke chapter 24, verse 50 to 53. Uh, today I plan to teach, uh, not to preach. Uh, we'll see how it goes. And Luke's gospel ends with these words, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed them. And it came to pass that while he blessed them, that he was parted from them, and carried up into heaven, and they worshipped him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, praising and blessing God, and the scripture says, Amen. Let's bow our heads as we pray. Uh, shall we, Father and our God, now as we consider why it is that we may not never surrender or compromise those precious things that you have given to us in your word. We ask that the same Holy Spirit who inspired the text that I just read may illuminate its meaning to our understanding and take the force of those words and pierce our souls with them that we may be emboldened that we may be encouraged, that we may be empowered to stand fast for the truth of your word. 
We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Before I get to this text uh, specifically, I did like to take a few moments uh, of historical uh, reconnaissance uh, to look at some events uh, that took place in the early period of church history. Uh, there's a man called Polycarp. Uh, Brother Wilton, I think he did his best to give me that. Uh, I move too fast. Let's go. I just want to give you a history here. Asia Minor, at Minor, in the year 155 AD. And uh, the next thing, the Bishop of Smyrna, who had been appointed according to tradition uh, by a man that he met when he was a young man himself, living in Ephesus, uh, a man who tutored him, taught him, and later appointed him uh, a bishop of Smyrna, the Apostle John. Uh, I'm referring now to that disciple of John uh, who was a disciple of Jesus, uh, who was the bishop of Smyrna, the venerable, saintly Polycarp. And, uh, and he was facing prosecution uh, for the charge of being a Christian and stirring up people to Christianity and therefore against the vision of the emperor, empire, the religion of Rome, and particularly the religion of the cult of the emperor. And those are the slides just to give you a brief history. Now, I'm gonna talk to you about this particular person. Uh, Polycarp uh, is a name that you may not be entirely uh, familiar with. Uh, he is not found uh, in the biblical text, but uh, various sources uh, point to Polycarp as a follower of John, the one Jesus loved. Certainly, the deaths would allow for such a claim. Uh, he was born in 69 AD and died in 155 AD. There's a great lesson to learn from this early uh, Christian story. At this point in history, uh, Christianity was going uh, through perhaps the worst persecution it would ever face. The Roman Empire was full swing. Emperors were hostile and militant against those of the faith. They would declare uh, and mock Christians as being atheists because of their failure to acknowledge Caesar as deity. In order to live as a normal citizen, uh, one had to confess that Kaiser Curious, which translate Caesar is Lord. Without this confession, uh, a person was an outcast to society and was subject to punishment. So Polycarp, being a first-hand a follower of Apostle John, I'm talking about John the Revelator, uh, this Polycarp was his disciple, became a prominent teacher of the faith. Unfortunately, 
uh, with his popularity uh, came a high demand for his life. And so he insisted on remaining uh, in the city for he was not afraid of what men could do to him. After being persuaded uh, by his students, uh, he eventually uh, retreated to a farm. The Romans, uh, they tortured local Christians uh, until they forfeited his location. And when the Romans came to arrest him, uh, Polycarp uh, offered food and a place to stay for the night on one request that he did have one more hour for prayer. Both parties, they agreed, uh, uh, but the inevitable was still coming. Uh, once uh, arrested, Polycarp was brought into the inner city uh, region of Rome. Now, the proconsul praised him, they praised him, and encouraged him to denounce Christ. He refused time and time again. He was threatened by the wild beasts um, of the arena, yet he remained steadfast in his confession of Christ. Eventually, uh, the Romans begged the question, what harm is there in declaring Caesar as Lord? Polycarp's response was the catalyst to his impending death. And so he was told by the representatives uh, of the emperor to deny Christ, to recant his Christianity, and Polycarp politely refused. At which point, a proconsul Quadratus uh, said, you don't understand, I have wild beasts here which I can feed you if you don't change your tune. This, by the way, was after the Roman Empire had banished the execution by feeding people to the lions. Uh, now they were more civilized by burning them at the stake. So Quadratus, the, the proconsul, and Polycarp refused to acquiescence, and he said, okay, then I will burn you at the stake with fire. Polycarp responded by saying, be that as it may, your fire will last no more than an hour and will then be quenched. But the fires that you face right under, but the fires that you face right under God's judgment will never go up. Well, Quadratus didn't like that, and he said again, you can spare your life if you just do this. Uh, if you say with respect to the Christians, away with the atheists, because Christians back in the day were considered atheists, inasmuch as they did believe uh, in the religion of the empire. And so Polycarp said, I am happy to comply. 
and he pointed to the pagans in the stand and he said, away with the actors pointing to, the, to, to, to them, the pagans. He did opposite. He played the, uh, the pro-council. He played him. He agreed that people were going to assemble, and during the assemble, he was going to denounce the Christians. But when the people gathered, he looked the other side. There were Christians here. There were pagans there. And he, instead of looking at the Christians and saying that they were atheists, he points to the pagans saying, you pagans are atheists. And this infuriated the proconsul Quadratus, uh, who was the representative of the emperor. And so here we see things escalated. And uh, so they took him to the center of the arena and they came out with nails, nails to drive his hands to the stake to keep him from fleeing from the fire. And he said, you don't need nails. You don't need nails. I'll stand here and take what comes. So instead of nails, they bound him with ropes and tied him to the stake and set the fire going. Now, with the witness of history, the testimony is say that when they ignited the fire at the stake, the flames were blown by a strong wind in such a way as they swelled up around Polycarp but did not touch him. The fire didn't burn a single hair on his head. And so out of frustration, the executioner took a dagger and plunged it into the chest of Polycarp and killed him. And again, the tradition says that so much blood came from his chest that it quenched the fire at his feet. No fire touched him. Don't play with God's people. Do not. Now, as remarkable as that event was, it could have been easily avoided. When Polycarp was arrested, as he was being taken to his hearing before Quadratus, he was told, all you have to do to escape all of this is to say two words. And if you say those two words, your life, your ministry, and all that you mean will survive. I wonder how many of you know what those two words he needed to say to save his life. All he had to say was Kaiser, Kaiser Curious. Kaiser Curious. Caesar is Lord. But Polycarp would choke to death before his lips could utter those words. And when he stood before Quadratus, and Quadratus asked him to deny Christ, he said, look, I'm 86 years. For 86 years, I have served Christ. And in all those 86 years, he has never forsaken me. So how can I forsake him? 
Two words, Kaiser Curious. Caesar is Lord, and his life will be spared. But instead, he kept to the earliest creed of the Christian dawn. Before the Apostles' Creed was written, before any creed was ever written, the earliest creed of Christendom is found in the New Testament, and it's a very simple creed that says, Jesus ho curious. Jesus is Lord. To say Kaiser curious, to say Caesar is Lord is to repudiate the first Christian creed. Jesus, how curious, Jesus is Lord. And so, what the issue was that day in 155 AD was the issue of who is the Lord? Who is the King? And Paul says here in 1 Corinthians that no one under the influence of God the Holy Spirit can ever say that Jesus is accursed. And then he goes on to say, no one say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And I believe that this statement from the Apostle Paul was elliptical when he said no one could say that Jesus is Lord except in the Holy Spirit. And what is left out uh, is no one can say that Jesus is Lord and mean it except by the Holy Ghost. Because our Lord himself said that there will be many people who will make the public confession and say Jesus is Lord and they will in the last day say Lord, Lord, didn't we do this in your name? Didn't we do that in your name? And Jesus says, I will say to them, depart from me, I never knew you workers of in iniquity. So Jesus said, these people honors me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. And so we can conclude from that anybody can actually say Jesus is Lord. Jesus is Lord without being in the Holy Spirit. And so it has to be uh, elliptical when Paul says uh, they they in that context, nobody, nobody can say it and mean it unless the Holy Ghost is in them. Now, there was a period, of course, in church history where it could have even been more literal without the ellipsis. That is, there was a time to even say it publicly was enough for you to be killed. To just say Jesus is Lord in the, during the Roman Empire, they will kill you. And so at that time when Rome required the loyalty or to the call of the emperor, Kaiser Curious, 
one had to be pretty much a true believer in that light to say, Jesus is Lord, Jesus ho curious. It's in Greek. Now, Ellen White, in the Bible commentary reads, at the eternity of Christ, if Christ made all things, he existed before all things. The words spoken in regard to, his, to these are so decisive that no one needs to be le left in doubt. My job today is to clear you from any doubt. Uh, I know you love Jesus, but I want to give you uh, this background for you to know that indeed Jesus is Lord. Christ was God, essentially, and in the highest sense, Ellen White says, he was with God from all eternity. God over all, blessed forevermore. And so Christ is called the curious in the sense that he has rescued us from bondage to sin and Satan, and now by his blood has purchased us, and we are his servants. So in that sense, Christ is our Lord. Speak to me. Christ is our Lord. You are not your own. You have been bought with a price. We are told, and that price is the price paid by who? By Jesus, our Lord, right? There's a song that says, I hear the Savior say, thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and do what? And pray, find in me thy all in all. Jesus paid it all. And all to him I, I owe. Seen him, left a crimson stain, he washed it white snow. Friends, Jesus is Lord. So Paul comes in and say, I am a slave of Jesus Christ because in Greek uh, you cannot be a doulos, which means a slave when there is no master, which means the curious. So the master is the Lord, so Jesus is the curious, and you are the slave, you are the doulos. So they cannot be a slave without a master. So Jesus is Lord to the glory of God the Father. In the Old Testament language, like I said, I'm giving a lesson today. In the Old Testament language with respect to God, where God is called the Old in the Old Testament, God is called Adonai. Say Adonai. Adonai. And that Adonai word in Hebrew is translated, right, is translated curious. Right? It's translated into the New Testament by the Greek word curious. And in the Old Testament, the title Adonai is reserved for who? For God. It's reserved for God. In your Bibles, you read on many occasions, like you do in Isaiah chapter 6 or in Psalm 110, 
The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand. And though the English word Lord is repeated, it's, it's two different words in Hebrew where it says, Yahweh says to my Adonai. Now, the psalmist writes, O Lord, my Lord, how excellent is thy name and all the earth. It's all Yahweh, our Adonai. Yahweh is God's name, right? And Adonai is his supreme title. And being translated, it means the sovereign, the sovereign one, our Lord, our sovereign. How majestic is your name in all of the earth. So Jesus became obedient and humbled himself and became in the form of a servant, obedient even unto death. Wherefore God has highly exalted him and given him the name that is above every name. Right? And what is that name? What is that name? What is the name that is above every name? What is that name? Jesus. The name which is above every name is the name Lord. It is Lord. At the name of Jesus, every knee shall of things in heaven and things. So it is because God gave him that name. Luke's gospel, which gives us this very brief description of the ascension of Jesus to heaven. Now I need you to pay attention here. And Luke, who also wrote the books of Acts, begins the book of Acts with the same account of Jesus being taken up out of their midst by this cloud of glory and the disciples standing there and looking up following the uh, ascent of Jesus on this cloud and the angels coming saying to them, men of Galilee, why are you standing here gazing into heaven? This same Jesus who has been taken away from you will come in like manner. But the verse in this text at the end of Luke reads, and he led them out as far as Bethany, and he lifted up his hands and blessed who? And blessed them. And it came to pass that while he blessed them, right, that he was parted from them and carried into heaven, and they worshipped him and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continuing in the temple praising and blessing God. They were breaking out in doxology. They were giving a song of praise. Notice, I need you to see something here. Notice that at funerals today, at funerals today, when somebody dies, we ask people to give a what? A testimony to them. We ask them to give a, a eulogy, to say a good word about the person who is departed. 
But in the New Testament, the ultimate eulogy is not given to dead people. But the ultimate eulogy is given to who? To God. And so, not because God, is, uh, God has died, but because he is supremely to be blessed. You can say nothing higher to any creature than what we say about God. So, and after the ascension, the disciples came back and they are praising God and blessing God in a spirit of great joy. Now, why? Because this is so twisted up. You need to think a little bit what was going on before Jesus' ascension. Something was going on like this. The first time Jesus told them, the disciples, that he was leaving, they were plunged to the edge of despair. They were overcome with sorrow. When he just told them that he was going to leave, they were sad. Oh, Jesus, don't talk about living. We can't stand the thought of not having you in our midst. They were sad. Please don't leave. And as you look, and, and Luke also told us that when Jesus told him he was going to Jerusalem to suffer, to die, Peter rebuked him and said, far be it. But now we hear they were happy. Right? Now we hear they were so happy. They were so happy now. We hear that. We can't stand the thought of not having you in our midst. Please don't leave us, Jesus. But now, Jesus is gone. We hear something that is opposite. They are happy. Why are they happy? Why were they not happy when he was telling them, I'm going to go to Jerusalem to suffer and to die? And Peter rebuked Jesus and said, far be it. We don't want you to talk about being humiliated like that. The idea of Jesus' humiliation and his departure was the worst of all possible concepts. But now we hear the disciples are happy. How are you happy? You know, you need to imagine something here. Something is wrong with this picture to say that the disciples were gazing and they were happy to see Jesus and he's taken out by the cloud and they watch him going until they can't see him anymore. And the Bible says after that happened, they were so happy uh, to the point that they went back to the church. They were so encouraged. Now they are happy. What is going on here? Why? I remember one story in my life. I was in grade one, and my mother would walk me to school. And as she walked me to school, she leave me by the school gate. The school was just a mile away. I didn't live in a country where I go to school by a bus. I had to walk to school. And so she would take me to school by the front gate. She would leave me there. I, she make sure I get through the gate, and then she begins to walk back home. And I'll look around, I'll turn around, and watch my mother going, 
Now look at going. I stared on her until she disappeared. I can't see her no more. Right? And even as a child, I had, a, some, I had some sense that this was a crisis moment and that I might never see her again. This is what's astonishing about this text, that when Jesus left, the disciples stood there gazing into heaven, watching the cloud of glory, watching his departure. And you would think that the next line that Luke would write was, and then they returned to Jerusalem, weeping and crying, convulsed with sorrow. But no, they are happy. What changed? They were not rejoicing because Jesus was living. They were not rejoicing because of where he was going. And they stood, they understood what Jesus had told them. It is better for you if I leave than if I stay. Because he wasn't just ascending in the sense of going up to heaven because he himself said, no one ascends into heaven except he who has descended from heaven. Did you see that? So that the term ascension in the New Testament means so much more than simply going up. And it even, it even means more than going up to heaven. Ascension, it means, it means the reason why the disciples were happy on that day was not about Jesus going. They were happy because it means he was going to his coronation. He was going to his investiture. He was going to receive the kingdom that is not of this world, but that is over this world. And on that day, Jesus ascended to the right hand of God where he was by God the Father's authority, consecrated, coronated as kings, king of kings, and lords of lords. This is the reason why the disciples were excited. Aren't you excited about that? Because he is not only Lord, the Jesus is Lord. God had to retell us that Jesus, the person you see, Jesus, is not only Jesus, he is Lord. So when he says, therefore, God gave him a name, the name that he was given is not Jesus. The name that is given is Lord. He is Lord over all over all things. And so the disciples, they remembered what he said, and now they're excited. They know their master is now being coronated. It's a coronation service in heaven. He's consecrated. He's king over kings and lords of all. And so it doesn't get any better than that to know that Jesus, how curious, Jesus is Lord by the authority of God the Father because you did not give him that name Lord. God gave him the name Lord. Okay? And so God the Father elevated to the right hand ruling over all creation. Jesus is Lord. We read in Luke and we read in Acts about this side of the ascension, but to read it from the perspective 
of the other side, we have to go to the book of Revelation. Now, you need to think this way. Now, they see him going. He's going. They go back to their old churches. They are now inspired because a miracle just took place. They gazed and they saw him and he's buried in the clouds, in their eyes, gone. From that point, they did not go home weeping. They realized the man they were walking with for three years, indeed he was God. And at this point, they are encouraged. Let's go back to church. You know why you and I are here? Because of those disciples. That's the blessed hope. They saw him going, and the same way he went, the angel says he's going to come in the same like manner. I'm here to tell you, my friends, we are not wasting our time. We are hanging out here waiting for the Savior, and soon he will return. And so here, John, on the Isle of Patmos, I was studying, and my brain says, okay, so when they saw him going, so he's there. Now, what is he doing there? What is he doing there? Because if they saw him going, another chapter in the Bible must tell us what he's doing there, because he's there. And so you read Revelation chapter 5. Chapter 5, where John is on the Isle of Patmos, uh, has given this insight to the inner uh, chambers of heaven. It, this, this, this was open to the John the Revelator. The Revelator had to tap into the heaven to see what Jesus is doing. And this is what John saw into the chambers of heaven, the very presence of the throne of God. That's where, what John saw. Where first they look, listen to what John is saying, chapter 5. Where, where first they look for a lion. What did they look for? A lion. And then comes what? A lamb who was slain, who at tears opened the books that had, actually, if you go Revelation 5, 11, uh, who, who tears opened the books that had hid all of the secrets. This is the ascended Christ coming into heaven. John saw this. The other end of the journey was given to John the Revelator. So you saw Christ now in heaven. I looked and heard the voice of many angels around the throne. Okay? Revelation 5.11. The living creatures, the elders, the number of them was 10,000 times 10,000 and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the lamb that was slain. He's there. He's already there. Okay, now, worthy to receive power. What is he doing? He's now in heaven, worthy to receive what? Power, wisdom, strength, honor, glory, and blessing. And every creature which is in heaven on earth and under the earth, and such as that are in the sea, and all that are in them, I heard saying, blessing and honor and glory and power be to him who sits upon the throne and to the Lamb forever and ever. To God be the glory. You can track Jesus in the scriptures. And, for the, and the four living scriptures, the four living creatures said, Amen. They said, Amen. And uh, the 24 elders fell down and worshipped him who lives forever and ever. 
That's why the disciples were excited. Okay? Normally, if you take people to the airport, you know they're going to fly, and they, they, there may be a plane crash. You don't want to talk about it. You don't want to talk about a plane crash, but they do happen. So when you take people to the airport and they are flying, you feel so sad, you want to take them and be there. Ah, you pray. That's why we got to ask for traveling masses. Those turbulence. We got to ask for traveling masses. Right? And so the disciples, when they saw him riding the clouds and he feels good, he's gone. They were not discouraged. They were instead of being instead of mourning and weeping, they went back encouraged. And they stayed at it. And the Holy Spirit was given to them. And now, now they are serving a risen Savior. They know even where he is. Look what Revelation says here. And you shall receive power. Right? So now, the song, I need you to see something. Don't you see the song of the angels? I see the song of the angels here. The song of the martyrs, the song of the church is always the same. Jesus is Lord. That's the same. That's the creed of being a Christian. There's no any other Lord. There's no any other sovereign. There's no any other king. It is our duty to bear witness to our king. Isn't so? Right? You shall receive power, he said, so that you shall be my witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem. Where? In Judea. Where? Samaria. The outermost parts of the earth. No Christian may ever negotiate the lordship of Christ. You don't have to negotiate that. If somebody comes to you and say they doubt Jesus, you tell them, sorry, the fool says there's no God. I think you're a fool. You got to tell them that. You cannot doubt the Lordship of Christ. And so, as we close, still the same story. Same story that we need to tell. I'm going to tell the story that Jesus is Lord until every city becomes a new Jerusalem. I'm going to tell it until every house becomes a house of prayer. I'm going to tell it until every sinner has been saved by grace. I delight in doing thy will, Lord. There's joy in telling the story of how Jesus is mighty to serve. God's love is real. It had no beginning and will have no end. It cannot change because God cannot change. God cannot change for the better, and he cannot change for the worse. He can change for the better because he is the very embodiment of excellence in himself. There's no nothing in his power or will to hurt himself. So we just join with the writer of the Hebrews in saying he is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Jesus is real. He is Lord. His love is everlasting. God does not love us because we are lovable or lovely. He loves us because uh, his love does not exist on our account of our character, but on his 
on his character, on the account of his character. God does not love us because we are valuable, but we are valuable because God loves us. God does not leave, God does not love us because Jesus died for us, but Jesus died for us because God loves us. His love is stronger than sin, uh, it's deeper than sorrow, it's mightier, mightier than death. And I just want you this morning to know that God loves you. That God loves you. Whoever you are, he's inviting you to come to Jesus. He is the Lord. He's inviting you to come to Jesus, receive Jesus as he is, come to him as you are, and his grace will save you. He didn't tell you to go and, and, and talk with anybody else. Just tell it to Jesus. You don't have to go out here and have a conference with anybody. You don't have to go and get somebody to recommend you. Just, just tell it to Jesus. There are no puzzles to put together here. There's no hieroglyphics to decipher, no foreign language to translate. Just believe in him. Stop saying that you have sinned too long and too much. If your sins are like scarlet, he'll make them whiter than snow. Any individual who come to him, he will in no ways cast out. I invite you to come unto him and do it now. Like I said, he is Lord. He is Lord. There is no any other God. He, hear me, O Israel, the Lord God is one Lord. He's one God, and it is Jesus. God gave him the name. I invite you to come. Uh, while you can, with the strength that he gives you, you can, if you want, you can walk down here, and we'll pray for you, and uh, you'll be encouraged. While you can, with the, past, with the power that he gives you, uh, you can testify of his goodness, of what he has done for you. You know, there are testimonies in this place. And while you can enjoy and know the joy there is in serving him, come on now and do it now. You know, I don't want to close this and forget to invite you to come to Jesus. Delay is dangerous. Borderline salvation is better than being lost, but this, that's too dangerous to risk. That's the reason why the prophet Isaiah Isaiah 55, 6 says, Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. And let him return unto the Lord and he will have mercy upon him to our God for he will abundantly pardon. God is ready, he is willing to forgive us if we will only come to him. My brother, my sister, don't be shy to take a stand and choose him against all odds. Your life is better when you give yourself to him. It will change you forever. The reason why I was impressed to talk about the ascension of Jesus, you would think that the disciples having walked with him for three years they will be so sad. Before he said he was going, they were sad. Now that he's gone, they're all happy. And today we're happy because of the hope that we have in Jesus. Amen. Let's all stand as we pray.
Let's bow our heads and pray. Father, give us the courage, the faith of Polycarp, the courage of faith, encourage our faith as you encourage the disciples who followed their Lord into martyrdom rather than to bow to the knee of the emperor. Forgive us, O oh God, for those times where we have compromised our king for the luxury and surfeit of the things of this world. And help us to grow in the fullness and maturity in Christ being conformed to his image so that our, our meat and our drink will be to serve him, to bless him, and to praise him without surrender. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated.